0: Hi it's Mike here, a warning this episode contains some strong language, some graphic detail about body recovery and a reenactment of a black box recording from the final moments of a plane crash.
1: December 1979, four men from New Zealand walk into a huge sprawling building on the outskirts of Seattle, Washington. They have their photos taken, get security tags and then they're taken inside. One of the men is Air New Zealand pilot Arthur Cooper.
2: Right through this building, it took quite some time to get through it, and we went out the far end of it, out into the open, then we were taken across a, a road or a track, and here was this parked caravan. And we went in there, and here was this old bit of machinery there. This was where they got to play the first go of the tape.
1: The tape is the cockpit voice recorder, sometimes called the CVR, but better known as the black box. Black boxes at this time recorded everything that was said in the cockpit, but only on a 30-minute loop. Arthur Cooper, fellow Air New Zealand pilot Barney Wyatt, Chief Flight Engineer Don Olive, and Air Accident Investigator Milton Wiley are at the headquarters of the Sundstrand Corporation. They make black boxes. It's the Kiwi's job to decipher the tape, to find out what was said during the final half-hour of Air New Zealand flight TE901 before it crashed into the slopes of Mount Erebus in Antarctica, killing all 257 people on board. The men sit down around a table in the caravan and press play.
3: Where's Erebus in relation to us at the moment? A left about 20, 25 miles.
1: Left, you what you're hearing is a studio reenactment that aired on RNZ in 1980. 20, 25
3: miles. Left, do you reckon? Well, I don't know. I think uh, I've been looking for it. I've been thinking of any high ground in the area, that's
2: all. I mean, it was like... You're going to see a thriller movie, but you don't know what the end is, but you know it's not a good end. And uh, that first time we went through, we were all shattered, totally shattered.
1: The men sit in silence, digesting what they've just listened to. Moments before the end, as the slope of Mount Erebus raced up to meet the plane, they heard its ground proximity warning system go off. But there was one thing the men didn't hear, that they might have expected to. Here's Milton Wiley. We were listening to it, and it was going
4: along, and it said, then the GPWS sounded off.
1: GPWS, that's Ground Proximity Warning System.
4: 400 feet, pull up. And that was like, when we were listening to it, it was like,
1: <laughs> what happened here? And then uh, Jim Collins. Remember from the last episode, Jim Collins is the captain of the plane. Jim Collins calmly did a procedural go-round, basically. call
4: called for go-round power.
3: Go around pal,
4: please. And and then suddenly it's like that stopped. There's no bullshit. It actually stops. I don't think they knew what hit them.
1: Just to be clear, Milton Wiley is saying that Captain Jim Collins, his first officer and the two flight engineers, none of them saw Mount Erebus moments before they flew into it. Four pilots with an alarm going off in the cockpit, telling them that the ground was dangerously close, still didn't see a mountain right in front of them. The question the men in the caravan were asking themselves was the same one that a whole lot more people would soon be asking, and the one we're asking too. How could something like this happen? I'm Katie Gossett.
0: And I'm Michael Wright. From Stuff and RNZ, this is White Silence, a podcast about the Erebus disaster.
2: I couldn't understand the logic of what he had done and why he'd done it. The hardest
5: thing I think I did in the whole thing was take property back to the families and saying this is all you've got.
6: But when you see pilot error written in headlines and in the daily newspaper, It's bad.
0: Episode 2, The Caravan.
5: My name's Ian Thomas Hambly. In 1979, I was a steward with Air New Zealand. At the time of the accident, I had
0: started six weeks' annual leave. You might remember Ian Hambly from our last episode. He was one of the flight attendants on an early Air New Zealand sightseeing flight to Antarctica back in 1977. You might also remember that we mentioned his previous job. I had three years in the police. I joined as a cadet in 1963. In early December 1979, just days after the Erebus crash, Ian Hambly's old job was about to prove very useful in his current one. One of his fellow cadets was now a senior sergeant with the Auckland police. There was hardly any information at Air New Zealand about what was happening with the crash. So Hambly called his old friend. Nick said that he had been asked by the police
5: to go with a contingent up to the Auckland coroner's office. So he said, come with me. So I crashed this meeting. I mean, there are all these heads of everywhere and me. <laughs> no one asked who I was or why I was there.
0: The meeting was led by Auckland coroner Alan Copeland. On the agenda, what to do about the 257 bodies in Antarctica. There were thoughts of leaving everybody
5: in Antarctica. They knew who was on the flight. It's an isolated part of the world. The police had been in touch with Interpol, and the best advice that Interpol could give was
0: that the last major accident had been Tenerife, where two jumbos had collided. This was in the Canary Islands in 1977. One jumbo was taking off, the other was taxiing when they crashed into each other. 583 people died
5: and the police advised that they'd cut the lower jawbones off the remains.
0: And I remember Alan Copeland saying, I don't think we'll do that. Everyone agreed the victims should be brought home. Then they'd be taken to the mortuary at the Auckland Medical School, the only place that could handle so many bodies. Ian Hambley's friend, Senior Sergeant Nick Anderson, was put in charge.
5: And I said to Nick, can I, you know, be part of this? I'd,
0: you know, I'd like to get these crew out of here as quickly as possible. So instead of going on leave... Ian Hambly spent six weeks in the morgue, identifying the bodies of the flight crew and returning their personal property to the families. Mostly, the work was one long, morbid grind. This was in the days before DNA technology, so formal identification was pretty basic. Dental records had to be requested, and police visited families. Did your husband wear an Omega watch? Did your mother own a pearl necklace? There were some unforeseen problems as well. The bodies were flown from Antarctica to the Air Force Base at Funuapai in West Auckland. The morgue was in the central city, which meant dozens and dozens of ambulance trips. And they were going backwards and forwards all day, you see,
5: with a plane load of bodies. And there was public grief, as you can imagine, everyone was stopped. Someone decided to hire a refrigerated freight lines truck and park it at the airport at Funuapai and unload all the Hercules aircraft and the bodies into this truck and keep it at the airport until it was full. And one night, in the middle of the night, the truck drove to the mortuary and parked at the back of the mortuary.
1: Victims' bodies started arriving from Antarctica on December the 6th, eight days after the crash. The story of how they were retrieved and identified has been told before, but it's worth repeating because it's kind of remarkable.
5: The way it worked was that the on-site coordinator would have a a master map of the grids, and he would assign each police team, and there were four teams.
1: This is retired police inspector, Stu Leighton. In 1979, he was a constable, 22 years old, part of the police's brand new Disaster Victim Identification Team, or DVI. It was so new, in fact, that Leighton and his colleagues were only given the finalised procedures for DVI work on November the 28th, the day of the crash.
5: I was driving home uh, to the Hutt Valley at the end of that operation and one of the fellow police officers who was with me said, you know, Stu, he says, I've been in the police for 20 odd years, 30 odd years and we've never had to use these procedures and we never likely will either. And that was about the time the plane impacted onto the mountain.
1: The next day, Leighton and 10 other police were on a plane to Antarctica. None of them had been there before. Stu Leighton had never even touched snow before. Neither had Sergeant Greg Gilpin, who was 33, and would soon find himself officer in charge at the crash site.
7: During that trip, I was thinking, this is madness. Here we are heading to the Antarctic, most of us not having any uh, mountaineering experience. I envisaged, and most of us did, that we were going to be clinging to the side of a mountain. We really had no idea of what the terrain was like up there at that stage.
1: They had to wait a few days to get their first look. The weather hadn't been great since they arrived in Antarctica and this day wasn't much better. The chopper pilot couldn't find the crash site at first. When it finally emerged through a break in the cloud, he made a beeline, hovered over it and told the men to jump.
7: We did that, slid down the mountain with our gear, which was in suitcases, cardboard suitcases. The scene of the crash was just um, one of utter destruction, both human and aircraft.
1: All across the site, they saw the lives of middle New Zealand abruptly cut short. Cash from passengers' wallets fluttered through the air, thousands of dollars' worth. Life jackets, coffee jugs and Air New Zealand uniforms littered the scene. A cabin bag with the words New Zealand Women's Division, Federated Farmers, Trip to Australia, 1964, written on it. A woman's diary with a prayer on the last page and a note saying how wonderful it was to be alive.
2: We were given all her personal effects. You know, it seemed ironic that the contents of her handbag were all there.
1: This is David Nicholson. You met him in episode one. His sister Christine was on the flight that day and he still has her personal items brought home from the mountain.
3: Her jewellery was all there, makeup, crazy things, really, you know, several um, hundred dollars and ten-dollar notes, all smelling of aircraft diesel. In. So you know, there's a massive impact, and yet um, all these possessions and whatever the watches still work, everything is still there and was recovered, and you know, was part of her.
1: The men went to work. The site had been surveyed into grids, 30 metres squared. Those are the ones you heard Stu Leighton talking about before. Bodies were marked with green flags and areas with crevasses were marked with red flags. Most of the bodies were at the top of the crash site. The middle of the plane, driven by engines at near full power, had overtaken the cockpit on impact and it was clear there'd been a pretty big fire as well. Sometimes a storm blew up and the men had to rush back to their tents. If they didn't go fast enough, they got hit by aircraft debris, whipped up by the wind.
0: As well as all that, there was the actual job at hand. Every body part found was treated as a separate body. There were 257 people on the plane and 348 bodies. They all had to be chipped out of the ice. Many of them were contorted, frozen at all angles and wouldn't fit into the body bags. Large Antarctic seabirds called skuas were a constant menace, attacking the bodies, usually the eyes first. They got so bad, the men took to covering the victims in snow after they'd been tagged and before they were taken
7: away. It was just stealing yourself to go and do the job. Greg Gilpin again. The only way really you could get through it is to have regular breaks and go up to the top of the site and have a cuppa or whatever. And then get back into it because the gear we had, the gloves were no good. They were of good material, but they were too short and there was human, um, you know, just falling down inside the gloves and it was. But it was just yeah, getting yourself psyched up to go back and face it.
1: We should point out here that the police weren't the only ones recovering bodies. A lot of the work was done by the mountaineers, who the police depended on for their safety. They couldn't go near the red flags, the ones marking crevasses, unless they had a mountaineer with them. If a body was down a crevasse, and many were, it was the mountaineers who retrieved it. Keith Woodford, who we met in the last episode, says much of what he did was before body recovery started, when experts were poring over the site looking for clues about what caused the crash. Those experts included Air New Zealand's chief pilot, Ian Gemmell, who was looking for the aircraft's two black boxes. Woodford was responsible for Ian Gemmell's safety on the mountain. When they were searching the site, they were roped together.
2: Ian Gemmell was a a strong character. He was one of those people who would try not to show emotions, you know, old school type, (laughs) tough-minded person. It was very raw, the experience of him at the time. These were his mates, his colleagues, that had been flying the plane. And from my discussions with Ian, he was just puzzled. What the hell had gone on? How had this happened?
1: It was a mystery. Later, Gemmell's conduct at the crash site would be questioned, and he'd be accused of lying. But for now... He simply delivered the black boxes to investigators. Once he found them, they were on the next plane back to New Zealand, then on to the US to be transcribed.
0: So this is it. Arthur Cooper still has his copy of the transcription from 40 years ago. There's been things added
2: since some of it mine. So this this was the, the legend. Number one
0: was the captain, first officer. Flight Engineer, Brooks Flight Engineer, Maloney. Everything Arthur Cooper is showing me is handwritten, all by one person. That was one of the rules, so it would be clear if someone else had changed something. Another was that all three Air New Zealand pilots had to agree on what they heard and who said it before it was written down. They'd been chosen because they knew the flight crew and could recognise their voices. Outside of family members, who really weren't an option, they were the best bet. Plus, they knew flying and DC-10s, but there was a limit to how much of their expertise they could apply. Our job wasn't to try and figure out what's happened.
2: We were there to to transcribe word by word,
0: right through, of what was said. That was easier said than done. Very few people have heard the actual cockpit recording. Access is heavily restricted. But almost everyone who has agrees the sound quality is terrible. The two pilots, Jim Collins and Greg Casson, had their own microphones. Their voices were relatively clear. But there were two flight engineers on the flight deck as well, and the commentator, Peter Mulgrew. They were all picked up by one overhead mic in the ceiling. Also, the cockpit door was open a lot. One of the perks of the Antarctic trips was that passengers could visit the flight deck, chat with the crew and see what was going on. That meant a whole lot more voices in the mix, along with banging and crashing in the galley, and whatever other noises wandered in from the cabin. To give you an idea of the difference, the men transcribed 20 minutes of a 35-minute tape on the first day, mostly the clear parts with Collins and Casson talking. The other 15 minutes took five days. It depended how well the individual spoke. Some people are
2: clear. The second flight engineer, Nick Maloney, who was a good friend of mine, and I knew him well, he sort of mumbled, Okay. uh, Mulgrew, he
0: mumbled just the same. Sometimes they couldn't tell the difference. After countless playbacks, they could only write questionable text in the transcript. Cooper says they listened to the dead man's voices so many times it was like they were ghosts in the room with them. You know, we'd be sitting around concentrating what we said, trying to pick up another word, weird might be.
2: and Nick Maloney would be mumbling away, and <laughs> I remember Don Olive saying, well, for Christ's sake, Nick, sure. Speak clearly, won't you? (laughs) You as I was there.
1: After six days, the pilots had done all they could. They played the tape one last time for the crash investigator, Milton Wiley, and a couple of the Americans. Everyone agreed it was a job well done. Wiley, who had more work to do in the US with the other black box, briefed the men before they went home.
2: He said that when we get back to Auckland, the handwritten tape will be typed out.
1: All the men would then be called in one last time to listen to the tape again and check that the typed copy was accurate. If they were happy, they'd sign off on it.
2: And then that would become the official cockpit voice recorder transcript. So okay, fair enough, that makes sense. So we all flew back to Auckland and I waited to get called,
0: waited to get called. I'm still waiting to be called because it didn't happen. The man responsible for that delay was the man everyone was ultimately reporting to, Ron Chippendale, New Zealand's chief air accident investigator. I knew him for many years. Milton Wiley again, who worked under Chippendale.
4: When I started an accident investigation in 69, he was next door office, he was the Air Force Flight Safety Officer.
0: This comes up a lot when people talk about Ron Chippendale, his Air Force background mostly because he looked exactly like a guy who had an Air Force background. Tall, lean, straight-backed, bald on top, with a thick moustache.
4: He looked like a squadron leader. He was a squadron leader. Good, solid guy. Uh, Straight guy.
0: Chippendale had been a pilot in the Royal New Zealand Air Force for more than 20 years before getting into air accident investigation. By 1979, he'd been in the top job for four years. It's probably not a surprise to hear that in that time, No other crash came even remotely close to the scale of the Erebus disaster.
4: We were set up to handle the small things. We weren't really established for this type of major disaster, obviously because we didn't have any.
0: No one else was really set up for it either. New Zealand had never had a tragedy like Erebus. When news of the crash reached the bars and restaurants around Parliament on the Wednesday night, they emptied out. Everyone was on deck. In 1979, Air New Zealand was entirely owned by the New Zealand government, and the government was going to have to respond. RNZ's chief political reporter, Richard Griffin, went straight back to the office.
4: Until about 10 o'clock that night, we had really nothing of any substance. It was pretty clear that uh, whatever had happened was catastrophic. But even then, Air New Zealand seemed to be in total panic mode, and their response was minimal, to say the
1: least. What made things even tougher for Griffin and his colleagues was the person they needed to talk to was the Shareholding Minister for Air New Zealand. That was the Finance Minister. Also New Zealand's Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon.
2: New Zealand has spent, borrowed and we've got to repay it. We'll deal with the militants and wreckers according to their just deserts.
0: Now, if you're like me and you weren't born when any of this happened, you probably still know who Robert Muldoon is. But just in case, here's the thumbnail sketch. He was New Zealand's Prime Minister from 1975 till 1984, leading a centre-right government known for its interventionist policies, big public works projects and conservative values. He was brash, domineering and he hated journalists.
2: You're dredging the bottom of the bucket if you have to go back to 1975.
3: I don't know how many of the people listening to this programme followed your figures, but quite frankly, I wasn't one of them.
0: He was also an aeroplane guy. He had a bunch of model planes in his office and he was close with the Air New Zealand Chief Executive, Maury Davis. Here's Richard Griffin again, talking about the day of the crash.
4: We approached Muldoon at about half past eight that night in the Beehive and he was extraordinarily dismissive. Panic merchants, dangerous to speculate, all that sort of thing. Politics was very different in those days and Robert Muldoon was a very different Prime Minister. I mean, the level of intimidation from the the ninth floor, was extraordinary.
1: Now, there were a few other things going on here that might have made Muldoon extra prickly when it came to Erebus. At the time of the crash, Air New Zealand's finances weren't good. We mentioned in the last episode that the oil crisis of the late 70s had pushed the price of jet fuel way up. That cost Air New Zealand millions of dollars. When it hiked airfares to offset the loss, people weren't pleased. Bumper stickers popped up, mocking its slogan. Instead of, nobody does it better, they said, nobody does it dearer. Also, DC-10s had been grounded worldwide for more than a month in 1979 because of safety concerns. That cost the airline another $10 million. There were industrial disputes with staff, and later, when the losses got bigger, talk of a government bailout.
0: Hanging over all of this was the spectre of insurance. Air New Zealand was going to have to pay out to the estates of the dead passengers, tens of thousands of dollars each. But if the crash was caused by willful misconduct on Air New Zealand's part, the airline could be on the hook for a whole lot more.
1: And so, for six months after the crash, almost nothing of any substance was heard from Air New Zealand or the government on the subject of the Erebus crash. This meant that whatever the media could dig up, that was it. Early on, a lot of stories were about mechanical failure. This was what grounded DC-10s a few months before the crash, but it was ruled out pretty quickly.
0: The other big focus was the matter of where the aeroplane crashed and how it got there. Remember, we mentioned this in the last episode, when the Antarctic Division boss, Bob Thompson, talked about where the wreckage was found.
2: It's really on the opposite side to an aircraft that would presumably have been a
7: approaching McMurdo Sound.
0: Almost all the aircraft flying south down McMurdo Sound passed to the right of Ross Island. But the fatal flight was heading directly at Ross Island. A big break on this issue came in early 1980 when the Auckland Star reported that navigational information fed into the DC-10's computer had been changed shortly before the flight. This was a crucial detail. You'll hear more about it soon. And it forced Air New Zealand's hand. Chief Executive Maury Davis chose his words carefully. They're read here by an actor.
3: Uh, You're moving into a very highly speculative area. Uh, The navigational information and the flight plan for the aircraft which crashed was accurate and entirely in order.
1: Meanwhile, the Chippendale report was a work in progress. A draft was finished in March 1980 and, soon after, the New Zealand Herald reported it would list several reasons for the crash, including incorrect navigational data, the briefing that the pilots received, and the fact that they'd been allowed to fly to Antarctica with no experience of polar conditions. This wasn't 100% accurate, but all those things would appear in Chippendale's report. Air New Zealand said nothing. Maria Collins, that's the widow of pilot Jim Collins, had a bad feeling about where the blame for the crash would fall. She'd spent the last few months at home with four daughters, trying to get on with life. She was used to running a household alone for days, sometimes weeks at a time, while her husband was away flying. After the crash, she told herself he was just off on another long work trip.
6: The freezer's full. The fridge is full. The younger kids are being taken by kind people to do lovely things. It's early December and, you know, going to see Santa. and Everybody's so busy. It wasn't time to grieve. But this trip that he was on was getting longer and longer. So with increasing time, the reality of it, what it was gonna be like, started to sink in.
1: The biggest reality check came when she got a visit at home from Ron Chippendale, the chief air accident investigator. Among other things, Chippendale wanted to see an atlas Jim Collins owned and had apparently taken to the briefing he attended before his Antarctic flight. There was a chance he had written crucial information about the flight path in it. He said, where's that atlas?
6: That atlas of New Zealand. And I said, well, Jim took it with him. He said, he didn't. I said, he did. I said, I can get you a copy of one. One of my neighbors has one. No, I want to see Jim's atlas that your parents gave him. And I said, well, it's with him. So it's lost. Well, he didn't believe me. And he thought I was shielding Jim by not showing it to him. When Chippendale left here, I guess you just know, he's going for the the pilot error.
3: The New Zealand government has released the official report of its Chief Inspector of Air Accidents on the DC-10 crash which killed 257 people on the slopes of Mount Erebus in Antarctica last November.
1: Despite Maria Collins' fears, the Chippendale report never actually used the words pilot error. Milton Wiley says that's just not something air crash investigators say. But there was only one way the media and the public were going to interpret its most crucial finding.
3: The report says the probable cause of the accident was the decision of the Air New Zealand captain, Jim Collins, to continue the tourist flight at low level in poor visibility, when the crew were not certain of their position.
1: In other words, the crash was Jim Collins' fault.
0: I went to see Maria Collins at her home a few months ago. She still has all the newspaper clippings she collected that blame her husband for the Erebus disaster. The other voices you can hear are her eldest daughter Catherine and me. It's
6: June, just as the twin. a couple thing. of weeks before. Mm. Yeah.
0: And there's a chip thing, Pull up, pull
6: up. Is that
0: so? That's the.
6: That version That's of the that transcript. Chippendale's report, Dad saying, "Oh, well, let's, let's spin it, but for Kay Bird yeah. or
0: something," it's all rubbish. Fair to say, the Collins family didn't think much of the Chippendale report. Essentially, it found that Jim Collins had taken the plane too low while being unsure of where he was and unable to see what was in front of him. Ron Chippendale based these findings on several key pieces of information. We're going to take you through them now. Don't worry if you don't pick up everything here, because we'll go over this again in more detail in the next episode. For now, here's what the Chippendale report had to say. And here, we're going to break down that key finding you just heard that was the focus of so much media coverage back in 1980. First off...
3: The report says the probable cause of the accident was the decision of the Air New Zealand captain, Jim Collins, to continue the tourist flight at low level when the crew were not certain of their position.
0: According to the Chippendale report, The DC-10 struck Mount Erebus at an altitude of 1,467 feet, which is pretty low. Think about the last flight you took, when you were about three, maybe four minutes out from landing. That's about 1,500 feet. This was much lower than the minimum safe altitudes that Air New Zealand had set for its Antarctic flights. Now, you'll hear a lot more about minimum safe altitudes in the next episode, but for now, all you need to know is that the main MSA, that's what everyone called them, MSAs, was set at 16,000 feet and it was Air New Zealand's position that pilots on the Antarctic flights were banned from going below it. Ron Chippendale found that by descending to 1,500 feet Jim Collins did not comply with the MSA restrictions. He called this the initiating factor in the crash. Now before you go thinking Jim Collins and Greg Kesson went completely rogue here and took the plane down to a crazily low level, they did have a permission of sorts. Air traffic control at McMurdo Station told the pilots, you can drop down to 1,500 feet if you want. We'll get into exactly how and why this happened later, but for now all that's important is that Chippendale acknowledged this detail in his report, but dismissed it as irrelevant. The fact was, he said, that Captain Collins had breached Air New Zealand's rules by not staying above 16,000 feet.
1: Now, the second part of that key finding. This was the question of exactly what the pilots could see in front of them. And Chippendale's conclusion, the decision to keep flying at that low altitude... In
3: poor visibility.
1: Visibility so poor that they didn't see Mount Erebus in front of them. Remember, this is what had surprised Arthur Cooper and the others when they listened to the black box recording. Why was no one screaming that they're about to hit a mountain? Plainly, they hadn't seen it. The question was, why not? The answer lay with the weather. The air traffic controller had told the pilots that conditions at McMurdo Station were low overcast cloud at about 2,000 feet, a bit of snow, but otherwise good visibility of about 40 miles under the cloud. That's
3: the edge? Down to 2,000 feet. Yes. Yes. IASO. You've got speed set up there anyway, haven't you? Altitude, Captain.
1: Speed. The pilots took the plane down to an altitude of 1,500 feet to get under that cloud and give the passengers a good view of the area. As Chippendale said, quote...
5: The pilot probably assumed he would be able to see any and all obstructions clearly.
1: Jim Collins couldn't see any and all obstructions. Most importantly, he couldn't see Mount Erebus.
3: I reckon birds through here and Ross Island there, Erebus should be here. Right. Terrain 1500.
1: Collins and his flight crew had very likely succumbed to an insidious form of whiteout... This is another term you'll hear a lot of whiteout. If you've heard it before, you'd probably associate it with being in fog or cloud or a snowstorm. Anywhere where the whiteness of your surroundings means you can't see. Those are all true, but this type of whiteout was different. Now, Chippendale didn't say this is definitely what happened, but he went into a lot of detail describing this in his report. Remember, the plane was flying in clear air when it crashed, so for lack of a better term, we're going to call this clear air whiteout. Now some experts might be cringing here, but very simply, clear air whiteout occurs when you have white surface below you, such as the solid sea ice, and a white surface above you, such as an overcast cloud bank at 2,000 feet. Sunlight penetrates the cloud and then reflects off the two white surfaces over and again. This plays a trick on the human eye. It struggles to separate the two surfaces and can't make out the horizon. So not only might you not be able to tell that the ground is rising in front of you, your eyes might in fact be telling you the opposite, that there is flat terrain ahead as far as you can see. That's why no one on the flight deck said anything about the mountain in front of them, not even in the last moments before impact. They genuinely thought there was nothing there. If that all sounds crazy to you, you're not alone. Chippendale also noted in his report that people who haven't experienced clear-air whiteout before often have a hard time accepting that it exists. The fact is, it does, and you don't need to be in an aeroplane to fall for it. Here's Milton Wiley.
4: We had some guys at McMurdo, when when they were down there, they were on one of these skidoo-type things, and they tried to drive along. They thought they were driving on a level, but, but they were actually going up at about a 30-degree slope, and then they wonder why this thing stopped. Uh, then they realised that they fell off this thing. Uh, um, you know that's, that's the effect of whiteout. But it wasn't in
0: cloud. So, according to Chippendale, two of the three key reasons why the plane crashed were Jim Collins' decision to take the plane so low, under the 16,000-foot limit, and, as you've just heard, that the crew were likely hit by a kind of whiteout which meant they not only couldn't see Erebus in front of them, but were under the illusion that there was nothing but flat terrain ahead. The last reason was about something we've heard before, that the flight crew was
3: not certain of their position.
0: This is connected to some of the media coverage we mentioned earlier, about there being some kind of navigational data issue that might have caused the crash. Now, this part is a bit complicated, but bear with us. We'll try to keep it simple, and we are definitely going to come back to it later. Here we go.
1: The path of any commercial flight is made up of a series of waypoints. These are coordinates, latitudes and longitudes, that can be plotted on a map and that an aeroplane's onboard navigation system can follow. Sort of like a join the dots to get you from A to B. On most flights, the final plot point, or the destination waypoint, will be the airport that you're flying to but the Antarctic flights were a round trip, down and back, so the destination waypoint was just a nominal halfway mark, where the plane turned around and came home.
0: The navigation issue on the fatal flight was that one of the coordinates on the destination waypoint had been changed.
3: The flight plan stored on Air New Zealand's computer had McMurdo Base marked in the wrong place. It was more than two degrees of longitude out, which put it on the other side of McMurdo
0: Sound. Now, the original route for the Antarctic flights was over Ross Island and Mount Erebus. But the change you just heard about moved the flight path 27 miles to the west, out into the middle of McMurdo Sound, where there was nothing but flat sea ice below. This change was made by mistake, and it actually happened in 1978. Five flights had been and gone before anyone noticed anything. The reason for this, Chippendale said, was because once the planes were in the McMurdo area and the weather was good, they pretty much went where they wanted to. They were sightseeing flights after all, so in other words they weren't sticking to the flight path, which meant they weren't flying all the way to the destination waypoint to find out exactly where it was.
1: Three weeks before their flight down to the ice, pilots Jim Collins and Greg Casson attended a briefing. At this briefing, they saw the same flight plan as the previous pilots, the one with the mistake in it. But between the briefing, which was on November the 9th, and the fatal flight on the 28th, the error was picked up. It was finally corrected on the 27th, changed back to something close to the original flight path over Ross Island and Mount Erebus, the day before their flight. No one told Collins or Cassin about this.
0: The potential significance of this was huge. It meant that up until the day before the crash, the flight path passed well to the west of Ross Island. So if you take a pencil and trace that old erroneous flight path on a map, you're going to be drawing a line down the middle of McMurdo Sound over a huge stretch of flat sea ice which has an altitude of, well, zero. Take the same pencil and draw the so-called correct flight path and the line will go right over Ross Island and right over Mount Erebus a volcano that is 12 and a thousand feet high, taller than Mount Cook. All this would be a pretty good explanation for why the crew were not certain of their position.
3: Where's Erebus in relation to us at the moment? Uh, left, about 20, 25 miles. Left, you reckon? Well, I don't know. I think uh, I've been looking for it. I've been thinking of any high ground in the area, that's all. Uh, yes, I reckon about here. Yes, no, no, I don't, I don't really know.
1: Some of the black box transcripts supported the idea that the pilots thought they were way out west, over the sea. Crew members talked about certain landmarks that you'd see if you were in that area. All this could have explained why the pilots took the plane so low. Would they really have gone down to 1,500 feet if they knew they were heading straight at a mountain?
0: Chippendale mentions all of this in his report. He even wrote that the pilots may have descended as low as they did for that reason thinking they were west of Mount Erebus and flying safely over sea ice. So he doesn't give Air New Zealand a free pass.
3: Air New Zealand is criticised for inadequate pre-flight briefing before the plane took off from Auckland on the 28th of November. The report says the company's computer had been two degrees longitude out on its navigational setting for 14 months and had not been corrected until just before the flight. It says misleading maps were issued to the crew which showed a flight track going west over Ross Island when the flight plan was to fly east.
0: But despite all this, Chippendale still blames the pilot. He might have been given the wrong information, but he still should have known where he was. In the case of this crew, no evidence was found to suggest that they had been misled by this error in the flight plan shown to them in the briefing. And that's all that stuck in the public's mind. Yes, Air New Zealand had made mistakes, but when it came to the headlines and what people remembered, there was only one story in town. Maria Collins was devastated. She'd heard from friends at Air New Zealand that there was a navigation issue in the crash, but here it was, well and truly buried, in stories that blamed her husband and ran a picture of him that she hated. It was probably just a personnel photo from Air New Zealand, but Maria thought it made Jim look like an idiot. If you've seen it, it's not great. It does kind of look like a mugshot. It was her lowest moment.
6: But when you see pilot error written in headlines in the daily newspaper, it's pretty bad. Remember, at that time, papers aren't like they are now in New Zealand, where you, you can get all your information different ways. But in those days, what you read in the newspaper <laughs> was what it was.
1: The Chippendale report was released to the public on June nineteenth, 1980. By air accident investigation standards, it was a sensation. The Christchurch government printing off a shop sold out of its copies, or oh, 15 of them, in under an hour. It had to order twice as many again and limit sales to one per customer.
0: There was one other thing about the Chippendale report that was pretty strange, something that would later inspire some serious conspiracy theories. Remember Arthur Cooper, the pilot who helped transcribe the black box recording in Seattle and how he was waiting for a phone call to sign it off? I'm still waiting
2: to be called. It didn’t
1: happen. The reason he was left hanging was because Ron Chippendale had taken the black box to the UK to see if experts there could help him make out any more of what was said. It turned out they thought they could. The updated transcript was included in the published report. Newspapers around the country ran extracts from it and TV and radio staged reenactments. That’s the RNZ version you’ve been hearing.
3: That's the edge. Down to 2,000 feet. Yes. Yes. Ah, yeah, yes, You've got speed set up there anyway,
1: haven't you? Altitude, Captain. It wasn't the transcript Arthur Cooper had worked on. Well, I was appalled for
2: a start. Uh, he didn't know any of them. He didn't know. He never flown with them at all. He didn't know their,
0: their, their accents, etc. The new version of the transcript had some pretty big changes. Most of them came from the bits of audio that Cooper and the others had listened to countless times, but couldn't make out. One of the most significant of these was a phrase spoken by an unidentified person, about two minutes before impact. If you've read about the Erebus disaster at all, this might sound familiar. The person said,
3: Bit thick here, eh, Bert?
1: Did you catch that? It was, bit thick here, eh, Bert? This was really controversial. Clear-ear whiteout could happen without a pilot knowing it, but here was someone who seemed to be acknowledging that visibility shortly before the crash wasn't very good, which implied that maybe the pilot should have known better than to press ahead at such a low altitude. Another new addition appeared in the transcript a few seconds later, this time attributed to flight engineer Nick Maloney, who said...
3: Yes, my oath it is. You're really a long while on instruments at this time, aren't you?
1: Yes, my oath it is. You're really a long while on instruments at this time, aren't you? Again, that's not super clear, but it suggested that someone in the cockpit was looking closely at an instrument panel. Not something you'd need to do to establish your position if conditions outside were clear.
0: The biggest problem with that first change was that none of the flight crew were named Bert, not even a nickname. So who was this unidentified person talking to? Also, Chippendale had spent a page and a half of his report explaining what clear air whiteout was. He said, It's not likely that the potential whiteout hazard was appreciated by the crew. If the crew didn't know they were in whiteout, why was anyone talking about thick conditions outside or using the instruments for a long time? It was confusing and it gave rise to a misconception in the media and the public that Ron Chippendale had concluded that the plane was flying in cloud. Milton Wiley is adamant it wasn't.
4: I don't believe he flew into cloud at all, never. And, and Ron it was the same, never thought he, because we had the photos.
1: The photos he's talking about here were from passengers' cameras. Police and mountaineers recovered them from the crash site. When they were developed, they showed sunlight streaming in the windows while the plane was in McMurdo Sound. Not something that would happen if the plane was in cloud the transcript changes supported another one of Chippendale's findings.
3: Actually, those conditions don't look very good at all, do they? No, they don't. Uh,
1: That the flight engineers in the cockpit had repeatedly questioned the pilots and expressed, quote, mounting alarm about flying so low. uh,
3: That looks like the edge of Ross Island there. I don't like this. Have you got anything from him? No.
1: Arthur Cooper couldn't believe it. Not just that Chippendale had produced this new transcript, but that this new version supported the theory, there was some kind of panic in the cockpit.
2: He completely jerried it up. Like all the protocols that we've been told to follow, it was appalling actually, appalling. I couldn't understand the logic of what he had done and why he had done it. And in the end came to the conclusion that he
0: was basically manufacturing the information. That's a serious claim and, we stress, Arthur Cooper's opinion. In June of 1980, it was one held by very few people. Most people didn't question the information. They believed what they heard. As Maria Collins said, New Zealanders didn't have many places to get their news 40 years ago. If it was in the paper, that was what it was. Soon after the Chippendale report was released, Maria Collins went to see her lawyer, Paul Davison.
6: I sat there in Paul's office, the one, one time I ever sobbed, saying, well, you know, is, what happens now? Am I married to a murderer? And he said, you've got to be patient, Maria. There's more to this than meets the eye.
1: So by the middle of 1980, the report of New Zealand's chief air accident investigator had concluded that the Erebus crash was most likely caused by the actions of Captain Jim Collins, He and his co-pilot took the plane too low without knowing exactly where they were or being able to see what was in front of them. The report had shed swathes of light on the crash, but, as we've heard, left a number of questions unanswered. Why
0: was there an error in the Antarctic flight plan? And why had no one in the Air New Zealand navigation section noticed for more than a year?
1: Did the pilots really think they were flying over sea ice in the middle of McMurdo Sound? Shouldn't they have known better if Air New Zealand always intended for the flights to go over Ross Island?
0: And perhaps most of all, if there was an error in the flight plan and it had been corrected, why the hell did no one tell the pilots? Someone was about to ask those very questions.
3: A well, one-man commission of inquiry is to be set up into last November's DC-10 plane crash in the Antarctic. The appointment of Mr Justice mann has been confirmed by the government.
1: Justice Peter Mann was about to take a much wider look at the Erebus disaster. Chippendale had been thorough, but the government decided the tragedy was just too big. It needed a wide-ranging, independent inquiry. Peter Mann could look into anyone, even those not on the plane, to see if anything they had done, or not done, had contributed to the crash. That meant people at Air New Zealand, people at Civil Aviation, and people in the government. Man was facing just about the toughest job a judge could get. Find out who was responsible for the single worst disaster in a country's history. It would end friendships, careers and maybe even one more life.
2: In the end, I had to make my mind up. did 15 highly experienced and highly skilled people make between them 47 individual and independent mistakes. I've been thinking about it for 40 years. Mm. If only. Nobody knew that there was a 27-mile change.
1: That's next time on White Silence.
0: White Silence is a co-production between Stuff and RNZ. Written, produced and presented by Katie Gossett and me, Michael Wright. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ and, for Stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Harderfeldt, Kamala Heyman and Adam Dunning also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer and included audio from Nautonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. You can subscribe to the full six-part series at Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Podbean and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff or RNZ homepages to find details on how to subscribe.